0: From a secret location in room 100 of 540 Jack Gibbs Boulevard, this is Craft. I'm your host, Doug Dangler. Native Columbusite Maggie Smith has published poems in the Paris Review, the Gettysburg Review, and the Florida Review, won the Benjamin Saltzman Literary Award, and a 2011 Creative Writing Fellowship from the National Endowment for the Arts. Her second book, The Well Speaks of Its Own Poison, was the winner of the Dorset Prize. She lives in Bexley where she works as a freelance writer and editor. She'll be appearing with the Thurber House's Literary Picnics on Wednesday, July 15th. Welcome to Craft, Maggie Smith.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Well, I'm happy to talk to you again. Uh, this is a uh, second time that we've talked. So That's right, yeah, that's right.
1: It's been a few years.
0: It's been one or two, yeah. So in the meantime, you published uh, a well-received collection of poems called, as we said, The Well Speaks of Its Own Poison. So tell me about that.
1: Well, um, the book is uh, sort of largely inspired by uh, both Latin American folk tales and uh, sort of the traditional uh, Eastern European fairy tales that many of us grew up with, the Brothers Grimm in particular. And um, I started reading some of these fairy tales and got really into them and thought, I wonder if there's a way to sort of use these as an entry point as a sort of universal entry point for a more personal poem, instead of just starting a poem as myself. What if I kind of use these stories that everybody knows and can relate to as a framework, and then I kind of slip my own personal information into the poems. And so I, I started doing that not knowing it would turn into a book. um, But I really enjoyed the first one I wrote and then another and another, and they were well received in, in literary journals that I really respected and, And after a couple of years of doing that, I realized I had a book on my hands. And thankfully, um, uh, Kimiko Han, who judged the Dorset Prize at Tupelo Press the year that I sent it in, um, it resonated with her as well. And so now it exists as a real thing in the world.
0: So tell me about your interest in fairy tales. Is this something that you sort of got into? Because I think you've got two children, right?
1: I do. I do.
0: Was this something you were reading to them?
1: No, actually, I uh, I have a two-year-old and a six-year-old, and this book was mostly written before either of them were born. Um, so I had actually, I was working a job at the time where uh, I was reading children's books and then having to write catalog copy describing the children's books.
0: Interesting. And
1: so I was reading hundreds of books a year, and one of the books that came across my desk this particular year was um, a tale of uh Latin American folk tales in Spanish and then translated into English. And I had never read any of them before, but the language is so unusual compared, and the framework of the tales is so unusual compared to what I grew up with, which Mm -hmm. was really the sort of Disney-fied version of Grimm (laughs) um, and Hans Christian Andersen. So these tales, instead of, for example, uh, Once Upon a Time, they would start out with something like um they're really strange. In the land where all is forgotten, where no one remembers anything. And then the story would pick up there. So they have these really idiosyncratic openings and closings. Mm-hmm. And so instead of um you know, and they lived happily ever after, one of the common closing lines is, And here a cup got broken. Everyone should now go home. So they don't they're very peculiar and they don't have that sense of closure in them necessarily that we have come to expect um from the from the ones that are I think are at least more common uh that kids grow up reading in the United States. So I encountered these and I thought they're so strange and I found the language and the imagery so inspiring that I started writing these poems sort of borrowing from those tales. And then when I sort of exhausted that I was really enjoying myself and I thought maybe I need to revisit Grimm, for example, because right. I'm pretty sure I didn't actually spend a lot of time reading the real, undiluted tales growing up. We, I, you know, I was watching the movie of Cinderella, which is nothing like the tale of Cinderella. Right. And I, you know, I knew, you know, Little Red Riding Hood, but it, which is a little bit brutal even in the the kids' version, but it's it's even weirder when you get. The, the original. And so I went back and started reading these and, and discovered a lot of the sort of B-sides, the, the sort of lesser-known mm-hmm. tales that never really that Disney never got their hands on and found a lot there, too. And so it, it really didn't start out as, I'm going to write a book about fairy tales, but it just so happened that I kind of followed the uh, trail of breadcrumbs, as it were, and it kept going and going and going. And, and by the time I was done, I realized, okay, I've got 60-some pages here, I think I think this is a thing now.
0: That's interesting, because uh, I remember reading about uh, how much more brutal Grimm's fairy tales are in the original, and that when they collected them, they really weren't for children. Uh, I think no, they, were, no. they were never intended, and then they, you know, got watered down, and then they became um, sort of tales that were supposed to be instructive at some point, right? That's right. You know? That's
1: right, like cautionary tales. Right. And so the children are always sort of wandering away from their parents and being eaten or changed or uh, stolen or, you know, bad things happen when you leave your mother in these tales. And so in, in some ways it makes sense as a cautionary tale, although uh, I, I can't imagine ever telling my children that they'll be, you know, <laughs> swallowed by a wolf or thrown down a well or turned into a raven. Right, right. Um, you, you know they're they're very dark. <laughs> yeah, you might
0: be brought up on some variety of uh, child abuse charges uh, to tell your children some of these yeah, stories. Yeah, yeah.
1: I I don't think it's really I don't think it's really meant for kids, right. uh, so to speak. So yeah, I, I really it's funny. I I started writing this book before I had children, and so I was writing about these, you know, sort of hypothetical mothers and children a lot in the in this book, and then. I, I had kids and so the the last say third of this book the people I'm talking about are sort of more real to me because by that point I had a different frame of reference for the kind of the kind of poems that I'd been writing all along um and I, and and you can see that in the book that it, that toward the last part um they're a lot more autobiographical and uh and my my kids start to make an appearance themselves
0: mm-hmm but not wandering away from you and being turned into things.
1: No, no, no. Although, I mean, there's one poem in the, in the book called Shapeshifter, and, and it really does deal, I mean, so much of fairy tales is shapeshifting. You know, people turn into animals, animals turn into people. There's a lot of trickery involved. It doesn't always end well. Mm-hmm. Um, but part of what I was so surprised about, about being, becoming a parent for the first time, is that sometimes you put your kids to bed for a nap or overnight, and you wake up the next morning, and they look a little bit different. They look a little bit older. They change so quickly. It, it's almost magical uh-huh. in those really early years. And so um, shape-shifting in that way sort of becomes a metaphor for, for a really real daily thing that occurs when you have young children, which is they change literally right in front of your eyes. Mm -hmm. And um, for better or for worse, you know, they're growing up and and becoming something different. And they will leave you eventually, just Mm -hmm. hopefully not to go into the woods with a basket. (laughs) Because we know how that ends.
0: Right, yeah. Well, you know, it depends on which version you know how it ends. Because in the Disney version... That's true, we know. Right, you know, it even...
1: uh, It's it's okay. (laughs) The grandmother
0: gets taken out of the stomach in the most... That's right. and, And she's fine, and everybody's happy, and the wolf has been you know, thoroughly uh, chopped into pieces or or something like that. That's right. So as you look back on these poems, and it sounds like they're in almost, say, a chronological order for you from the beginning, like they were in the order you wrote them in the book. That was sort of a... You know,
1: they're they're not not exactly in order, but I did as I tried to arrange the book. I think um, there are more, at least from my perspective, more sort of of coming-of-age poems that happen in the first part of the book, um, and poems that i uh, I'm sort of thinking back to my own childhood and, and my sisters, and so some of my um my adolescence comes in earlier, and then I did try to kind of structure it so that um, my kids don't really come in um until until later, and so the idea of of motherhood is strong throughout because that they're cautionary tales, mm-hmm. but I think it it's more heightened in the second half of the book.
0: Okay. Were you able to show the poems to your mom, your parents, or something like that, and say, you know, what was your experience like when when I was a kid? Did they have a response to that?
1: Yeah. I mean, my, my parents are here in town, so they come um, to practically every local reading I, I give. And um, they've really enjoyed these. I think in some ways... And it's funny. In some ways, it's more comfortable to read um, poems that your child is writing that are slightly less directly about you. <laughs> you know, so I, my first book, you know, there were poems about my parents and about my grandmother and about my sisters that were very clearly about people in my family. There was no sort of narrative framework, and so in a way, these these fairy tale poems provide a little bit of that kind of narrative distance, although they do recognize settings and you know if i 'm talking about specific things in the poems they they recognize the the references but um, and it's a little bit it 's a little bit slipperier I think in this book than it was in my first
0: okay. so tell me about your writing process uh, when you've been write, working on a book um, you said your, your child is six these were written before so these are older poems that you've you've written and maybe I'm guessing sort of set aside for a little while and then came back to and you were able to say yeah. what, how did that change for you how often did you alter them when you came back to them
1: well you know I tried I tried not to mess with them too much because part of what part of what I have to do is in my revision process is not to sort of work a poem to death um, I tend to like my poems when they're allowed to stay a little strange and not, and I don't sort of sand every splinter out of them, you know. So yeah, I wrote them over a period of years and, and when they were done and I sent them to magazines and were published, they were pretty much done and I was able to just sort of put them away and, and um, not worry about them too much. Although in the process of, of publishing the book and rearranging them, I did find places where I thought, well, I don't know. I don't. You know, it's been four years now. I this line is kind of grating on me, so I'm going to sort of fix this a little bit. Right. But I didn't really go back and um, and do a whole lot to them individually. It was more, how do I make them work together? Because I'd been writing them over a series of years, not all at the same time. So what's the sort of narrative arc? How do I get them? To sort of play nicely right. in one all together when they have they've been able to live separately
0: for for a while. Um, did you make? Uh, I'm just curious about the mechanics of that. Is something like you you write a poem and then you go back and uh, at the time and say, oh, I want I, would, I want this to fit into the narrative arc, so I change this in order to make it uh, make sense with this other poem. I mean, th- that sounds like you've got a conscious effort to mold them into a, a singular idea or a, a book.
1: You know and. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I wish I wish sometimes I were I work that calculated. In most cases, I'm not, and it's more it's more a question of order. Like, where does it where does it go? Should it become? Does this poem need to come before this other one, in which case this poem needs to come after this other one? And so, a, a lot of the work for me is just printing everything out that I have, deciding what I like the best deciding what I really like that just doesn't seem to jive with the rest of them. And, and that's a hard decision to make. Like, I really like this poem, but it just doesn't go in this book and it needs to go into this other sort of extra pile and maybe something will happen with it later and maybe not, but it's just not, I can't shoehorn it in. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I didn't want it to become monotonous. But part of what I tried to do in arranging the book was, uh, Intersperse some of the more traditional fairy tale poems with poems that are clearly set in Ohio, and clearly involve sort of modern day uh, situations, so that it doesn't. I didn't really want it to feel like sitting down and just reading a retelling of a bunch of Grimm's tales. Right. It's not. It's not really like the Anne Sexton book of transformations, where each tale is. A retelling of a specific other tale there there's a lot of sort of mishmash in here, and it's all kind of dovetailed together with my own personal stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that was part of it is how do i how do I get the variety in there so that it doesn't become much of one thing for the reader.
0: Right. Which is interesting because, I mean, you know, on on one hand, you're striving for some sort of unity. And on the other hand, you have to say, well, I don't want too much homogenization. I want something that's going to be... So that that sounds like a great way to lose your mind uh, when you're... It
1: is. (laughs) (laughs) It is. And then you send it off to people and they say, well, have you thought about moving this here? And and it's like a house of cards. Like, well, if I if I do that, then everything falls uh-huh. apart because you can't really, you know, it's like Jenga. You can't really take one thing out and put it someplace else without having some sort of domino effect in the whole rest of the manuscript. So, so pulling it together there at the end was um, was challenging. And and I I sort of farmed out to, to different poets and, and asked opinions, and then had to sort of take their feedback, and and hold it up against my own vision for the book. And so there was some advice that I took, and some advice I didn't take, because mm-hmm. it just didn't... It would have still been a good book, but it wouldn't have been my good book. You know, it just wouldn't have... It wouldn't have felt the way that I wanted it to. Yeah. And so... Um,
0: I like. Yeah. I like,
1: it is intuitive, though.
0: Yeah, I like the way that you're describing that because it has that sense of this is a process among sort of more than one person, right? Where we often think of the yeah. romantic writer in the garret suffering alone. You got to share your suffering <laughs> with many other people and suffer. With I'm
1: happy you. to share my suffering. Oh yeah, I will all. Um, I'm happy to do that. I, I suffer alone enough as it is, just in the writing of it. So I'm happy to get some. Some extra help on the, um, the sort of structure side of things because especially when you've lived with poems for so long it's hard to kind of see the forest for the trees. Right. Um, you know all the stories behind everything. You know, you sort of almost know too much to be able to sort of, as the reader, be objective about, okay, what is this experience going to be like going through this book from start to finish as someone else? And so giving it to people who might not have been part of this from the very beginning is really helpful to sort of hear them say, oh, yeah, this is totally working for me, or I, I don't know, I feel like you need to do a little bit more with this section, or, or what have you.
0: Yeah, that, that's, I mean, the ending of it sounds like a, a good thing, but I'd like to go back to something you said before. You said, I suffered enough to write these and I thought that that was supposed to be where you were getting the rewards for the writing, <laughs> you know. Uh, it's, 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 so it's all at the end. It's all the you know the validation. No,
1: so. no. I mean, it's it's like it's a it's a it's a beautiful suffering. I'd say. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's it's just hard work. I think that's yeah. the thing is that there's no one no one else can do it for you. Right. You know, it's not. I mean, I do ask help from from folks if I'm stuck in in something. I'll send a poem to a friend and say, "This ending is not cooperating." And you know, what are you seeing here? Do you see? Are you seeing possibilities for this poem that I'm not, I'm just not able to see because I kind of heard it in my head one way, and I'm having a hard time rephrasing things to myself because I'm just kind of stuck right. in the way that it originally came, you know, to mind. And so I'm happy to to get to get feedback on that kind of stuff, but especially at the end when I've spent so much time with work, it's just, I feel like that's something that I can really use other people for. (laughs) I I mean, I like the solitary aspect of writing. It's probably part of why I started doing it. If you you like to be alone and you like to read, I think becoming, becoming a writer is you could do worse, you know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Although you came so close at the end to having, you know, a positive recommendation, and said instead you you veered off into you could do worse. Not a ringing endorsement of what you've chosen to Not do. Not
1: a ringing endorsement. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I I personally I, I loved it. People are like, don't you get? I mean, isn't it strange? You just sort of be in your own head all the time, and I just thought like, well, no. I mean. Isn't, wouldn't it be weird not to like to be in your own head all the time? Where else is there to go? I mm-hmm. mean, that's where you live. So you might as well enjoy it.
0: All right. Well, Maggie Smith, uh, who is a resident of both uh, Columbus and her own head, I want to thank you very much for talking to me today on Craft. Thank you. And we're uh, looking forward to your July 15th appearance with the Thurber House's Literary Picnic. And more information on that can be found at www.crafttheshow.com. And at poet.com
1: That's right. Thanks so much, Doug.
0: Thank you. For more information from my guests, visit www.crafttheshow.com. This is Doug Dangler. Until next time, be creative.